0: The presenting sponsor of this season of Wild Ideas Worth Living is Subaru. One thing I just learned that I thought was very cool is Subaru is donating 50 million meals to help feed people in need during the COVID-19 crisis. They know this pandemic is devastating our country and has left hundreds of thousands out of work and unable to feed themselves or their families. Through the Subaru Love Promise, a commitment to support their communities, Subaru and their retailers across the country are making a donation to provide 50 million meals to Feeding America. This action, called Subaru Loves to Help, will make meals available at 199 local food banks across the country. In addition, Subaru retailers will be doing other things to help these local food banks, including food deliveries, donations, and volunteer events. Subaru knows their ongoing support will be necessary as local communities work to get back on their feet. Subaru Loves to Help. Just one part of the Subaru love promise, one more reason that makes Subaru more than a car company. You talk a lot about competition, and I'm a competitive SOB, but sometimes as women,
1: like competition can be a little bit of a dirty word. It can. Yeah, it's a funny thing because, um, like some people just embrace it and have no problem with it. But I think that there's a huge fraction of women who don't always get really good social feedback for being competitive. I think a more general, um, experience is that, you know, if a man is, is, is competitive, he's looked at as ambitious and a go-getter. And as a woman, maybe not such a nice word, right? I was a swimmer when I was younger and, you know, again, always competitive, but always worried about, I don't want to beat my friend, you know, especially if if the person I'm racing against is a good friend or a colleague. There's that sense of wanting to be liked, not wanting to hurt feelings. And finally dawned on me that actually competition is a really cooperative effort. When I'm training by myself, I can push myself really, really hard, right? But I can never go as deep as I can when there's a competitor next to me. And she, her presence is what prompts me to dig deeper than I ever thought I could and to discover strengths that I didn't know I had. I can't do that alone. It's the competitive arena that creates this amazing environment where we can actually dig deeper than we ever thought we could and discover these things about ourselves. And actually, in that sense, your competitor next to you pushing you is your greatest ally. And the cool thing about that is you're doing the same thing for her. When Amber
0: Pierce talks about being a competitive athlete, She means it. At age 10, she was already competing seriously. Then in college, she received a D1 scholarship to swim at Stanford. But ultimately, she ended up becoming a pro cyclist. Amber signed her first pro contract with the WebCore Builders Pro Cycling Team in 2006. And since then, she's won more than 60 individual races across five continents. As a competitor for most of her life, Amber's all about encouraging healthy competition especially among women athletes. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Amber Pierce started cycling in her early 20s, and within a year, she turned pro. But for Amber, it's not just about the sport. It's about the competition, and that's where she thrives. She's also on a mission to reframe the culture around competition for women, But before we dive into her work with female athletes today, I wanted to go back to how she fell in love with competing in the first place. Note, we recorded this episode back in January of 2020 at the Outdoor Retailer Show in Denver. That was back when gathering and hugging and being around people was normal. Times have certainly changed. And while these stories might have moments that might not seem as relevant as they may have seemed at the outset of 2020, the adventures are still important and inspiring. You were competitive even as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, you grew up
1: really competitive swimming. So where'd you grow up and how'd you get into swimming? So I grew up in Reno, Nevada. And um, yeah, I, I I tried all kinds of sports as a kid. I was really lucky that my parents just you know signed us up for everything, let us try everything. And they really also let us kind of follow our own intuition and our own motivation as far as like what sport did we really enjoy and Um, you know, which ones we didn't like. I tried softball that did not go well. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was going through some old stuff and I found my my certificate from the softball team and I think it read most improved outfielder, which is just (laughs) a nice way of saying like, maybe you want to try something else. (laughs) So not a fan of the softball for me, but swimming really captured me. So I did this stroke class to learn all the different strokes and I just loved it. And they invited me at the end of the stroke class to uh, see, you know, they said, you want to try joining the swim team? And I thought, yeah, this sounds awesome. And I went home and announced to my parents, I'm Joining the swim team. And they thought that was hilarious because up until that point I hadn't stuck with anything for more than a few months. How old were you? Uh about 10.
0: Wow. So fifth grade. Yeah. Is, I was just like, this is it, man. So you probably what were your training days like? Because swimmers, they're they've got no joke training days. It's like five in the morning and then at night.
1: Yeah. Well, I was really lucky. The coaches that I had growing up were they were really, really aware of the long term, like the big picture. So they really progressed me gradually. I mean, I think in other programs, I might've been pushed harder earlier, but they were really gradual in progressing me up to higher and higher levels of, you know, volume and intensity and all of that. And so it took a while to build up to it, but you know, I mean, at 12, I was doing some double days and, and in high school, my routine was to get up at four in the morning and go to swim practice before school. And I actually really loved that. I think I'm kind of self-diagnosed ADD or ADHD. And I, and honestly, like, I think that that was a huge component in you know, being successful in school because I just, it calmed my brain down so that when I got to school, I could really focus and kind of get into flow. I think there's something to be said
0: for wearing out a kid before school. Oh man. So yeah. you can focus. Yeah.
1: I used to run before school
0: mm-hmm. only because I had to focus. Yeah. But yeah. it made
1: me a good runner. I know my mom would give us a hard time during final exams week. She'd be like, don't you want to sleep in a little bit? Maybe get a little extra sleep before your test. And it's was like, no way, man. Are you kidding? Like I got to go swim so that I can be on it. <laughs> but there was never like, like a, girl that you looked up to that that was doing it or
0: another coach or you just kind of always had it in your for your brothers and sisters competitive?
1: I don't know. I think it was just in me. And and yeah, when I got into swimming, there were, I mean Dana Baum, she was one of my like biggest competitors when I was growing up. And we're like going head to head when we're 12 years old, right? But we had so much fun together. And And neither of us held back and we, we lifted each other up through all of that. And so having competitors like that, that really bought into this, and even though I couldn't have at that time articulated it the way that I can now, that was what was happening was that, that competition is cooperation that, you know, every time I dig deeper, I'm raising the bar for her and she's raising the bar for me. But there was never any shit talking. Cause
0: like in soccer, (laughs) I was a soccer player. I had friends on the other team, but when we played against each other, we were mean, (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's just how it was. Soccer player, we were
1: kind of nasty. I mean, not that nasty, but a little bit. But part of that is, again, going back to when you show up to the line or you show up to that competitive arena and you're doing that favor for your competitor, you are being the one that's digging deeper and forcing her to find that strength that she didn't know she had. Honestly, the best favor you can do to your competitors and everybody there is to not hold back and to be merciless. And what were your events? It really shifted over the years. But eventually in high school, I was really I was more of an individual medley swimmer. So the 200 and 400 I am. And that's what I was recruited for for college.
0: Amber set multiple state and national records through high school. Turns out tiring herself before school actually helped her concentrate. She graduated high school as a valedictorian and earned a scholarship to Stanford. But partway through college, she injured her rotator cuff and couldn't swim anymore. There had to been like a little bit of a depression after swimming was kind oh, of yeah. done. Yeah, that was that was tough. Yeah. What happened and, and
1: how'd you deal with it? Only because I think a lot of people listening have been injured and it's hard. Being injured is so hard. and it, one of the peculiar things about it is the second that you're injured, you feel like you're never going to be healthy again. Mm-hmm. And then the second you get healthy again, you feel like you're never going to be injured again. That's <laughs> just like you get stuck in this this place. But I think there's so many components of injury that are difficult. There's a loss of identity, the loss of the ability to express yourself through movement, the loss of that uh, outlet of that that's so re-energizing when you get out and have that time to yourself to move in your body. I think all of those things are so difficult to lose. and, over the years, what I learned is that when you're on, you know, when you're on the front side, when you're still healing, it, an extra day, an extra week, it feels like an eternity, and you just can't wait to get back. But then once you get on the other side of it, it always feels like, oh, it actually went by faster than I thought. So, how do you deal with the loss of identity part? Because
0: uh, when I was in college, I played soccer, and mm-hmm. I played soccer all growing up, Olympic development, all of it. I ended up going to a Division three school, not a D1 school at the end of yeah. the day because I was like over it. Mm-hmm. I just burnt too soon. Yeah, And then I quit my sophomore year in college after I did an internship in South Africa. And I was like, wow, there's so much more to life than a green grass or a dirt track. <laughs> and I was so excited. But yeah. it was so hard because I'd been Shelby soccer player my mm-hmm. whole life. Yeah. And you'd been Amber, the s- phenomenal swimmer your whole life. Yeah. How did you deal with that?
1: Not well. Yeah, talk that. to me like, about that. Honestly, I think my 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 knee-jerk reaction to it was to just avoid it. It was to the point where I couldn't set foot on a pool deck for a couple of years without like the smell of chlorine actually PTSD.
0: Seriously, little. it was mm-hmm. like
1: a Pavlovian anxiety attack. It was crazy. It's funny because we tend to think of process as being really linear, right? Like, you know, you get out of it, what you put into it. And that's true to an extent, but the truth of it is it's usually really not linear. Like you could put a lot into something and not see returns for a long time. Then all of a sudden you just get this like huge leap forward or, you know, maybe you have a little bit of a setback, but it, it tends to not be linear. And there was this incident that happened that just was so incredibly healing and so quickly. And that's what I mean by the nonlinear part. Like it wasn't like I was like working through this and steadily making progress. Like I was not handling it well, but I got really, really depressed for a while, like really severely depressed to the point where it was so hard to get out of bed in the morning and just get dressed and go about my day. And I mean, I was in school, so like I needed to get up and go to classes and it was really hard. So I made a deal with myself that if I could get up, showered and dressed and out of the house by 9am, then I could reward myself with a mocha at Starbucks. That was like this little deal that I made with myself. And I, I could
0: do this shit too. So this is amazing <laughs> listening to someone who does this.
1: Oh, uh, so I would, you know, on the days, on the good days. And when I got to get to Starbucks and get a mocha, it was like really good. And I didn't, I didn't always do it, but it was a nice little reward system. And I remember I was standing in line one day at the Starbucks cause it was a good day, but you know, you're still just in this like very dark and swirly place. And I was in line And there was a gentleman, elderly gentleman standing behind me. And he said, oh, you've got to be an athlete. What do you do? Basketball, what do you do? And I was just like, you know, because here I am in the crux of this struggle, you know, of identity. And I said, no, no, I'm not an athlete. And he said, what do you mean you're not an athlete? And I was like, well, I used to be a swimmer. And he just looked at me and it was one of those moments where it was just like he just went straight to the soul. And he said, no, once an athlete, always an athlete. And it was exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. And it was it was amazing. This complete stranger was able to just like advance me so far along this path of healing. And it was, it was just, it was amazing. And it's amazing to me too the, how many women I talk to who've raced like six triathlons. And they're like, yeah, but i not an athlete. It's like, come on, man. Like there's no, there's no standard that you have to hit to say, to qualify, to call yourself an athlete. You know, it's always going to be a part of your identity and whether or not you happen to be engaged in racing or pinning on a number, or maybe you're not even playing soccer anymore, you're doing something else. It doesn't mean that you're, it's always going to be a part of who you are. And what that guy did for me, that moment was to just hit that home for me and just say like, Hey, this is this. This will always be a part of who you are. It's not a loss that you have to mourn. So I tried to run just to stay fit. And I was like, I'm just a terrible, terrible, terrible runner. And I was in grad school at the time. So I was going into the lab every day, complaining about shin splints. And my advisor literally one day just said, for the love of God, please just take my bike. You can have it. Just try another sport because this is obviously not working for you. So he gave you a bike. You went on it. Mm hmm what was it like? It was amazing. So literally every day on my lunch ride, I would just go right around Pebble beach. I mean, who gets to do that? It was amazing. So
0: you fell in love with a bike, but there's a part of the story we've left out. You were really freaking
1: good, really fast. (laughs) You know, it wasn't that it was, it was fast. I'll, I'll give you that. It was fast, but it wasn't that fast. Like the very first year that I was actually racing, I got convinced by some of my fellow grad students to start mountain bike racing because there was a collegiate mountain bike race team and like, oh, come race. And at that point I was still really burned out on competition. And I just said, you know, I I'm, I'm sorry. Like I don't do that anymore. I don't race anymore. Like that's just not my thing. And they said, well, it's not so much racing as it is. We just road trip on the weekend and camp out in a really cool place. And then we party all weekend. And at some point you ride your bike. It's fun. <laughs> I know. Right. Who's going who's gonna to say no to that? So I was all in and, um, but not in for the racing. I was, I was in for the social scene and I loved that part. And I didn't really train seriously cause I didn't want the pressure of having to have an expectation in the race. And so I did a whole mountain bike season like that. Nothing spectacular. I wasn't, you know, some phenom and then the road season rolled around and they're like, Oh, come out and do road. It's just like mountain biking, which is not true. But it was the same group of people. And I had just become really great friends with these folks. And I had a great time just going to the road races with them. And it was the same thing where I didn't really want to jump in with both feet because I, I was pretty burned after swimming. But about um, toward the end of that season, I got uh, called up to race nationals, not because I was amazing, but because we just didn't have that many women on the team. And I didn't do that well. Like I got dropped in the criterium and I, got, I crashed out of the road race. So it was not like a spectacular for showing. But when I was there, I got to watch some of the people race who were actually really good. And watching them just rip those corners, I mean, it was like, honestly, it was like one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen in my life. And it just flipped a switch in my soul that was like, man, this is what I'm missing. And that competitive side of me that had been like so tragically injured and derailed after the burnout from swimming just came back online and it was like, yeah, I want to do this. <laughs> so you quit swimming, you got into cycling, you go to nationals. Oh yeah. Pretty much within like six months, you're a professional cyclist. So what happened at nationals, I had that moment, right? Where I was like, dang, this is awesome. I really want to get good at this. And I just, I I made that decision was like, okay, now I'm going to train. Now I'm going to get serious about this. And I was in this wonderful environment where everyone on my collegiate team was super supportive. Like David, my then boyfriend now husband was incredible in, in teaching me the tactical side of things. Um, it was really fun. I'd go Go to a race and he'd say, "Okay, ten laps to go. Do this. Five laps to go. Do this. Three laps to go. Do this." And I just do what he said, and I'd win, and I'd be like, "Cool, I'm gonna listen to this guy. <laughs> he knows what he's talking about." Dating an athlete is so helpful. <laughs> it's so helpful. Sorry. But the, the whole team was so supportive, and so once I started training appropriately and really taking it seriously, like then then the results started to come, and so that's when I really, I really just fell in love with it, and. um I do have a competitive streak and I love the fact that I can step into this arena and fully embrace that side of myself and celebrate it. Right. Like not feel weird about it. Not, you know, there's just no hesitation. It's all the celebration of that side of of who I am. And I I love that piece of it. Uh, But road racing in particular, it's it's very tactical. And so one of the analogies I like to use is it's it's kind of like a combination of NASCAR chess and boxing. So it's like NASCAR in the sense that everybody shows up to the line with a a full fuel tank, so to speak. So you have a fixed amount of energy and you can take on some food during the race and all of that. But like realistically you've got only so many matches to burn. So you have to be really judicious about how you use that energy. And the way that you do that is by using the draft. And so if two people are on a road together and one's riding behind the other one in just like pretty standard conditions, the person who's behind is doing about 30% less work. So you can imagine the energy savings over hundred kilometers, let's say. And if that person just stays behind the person in front the whole time, they're going to easily out sprint that person at the at the finish line. But then you add in teams, right? And that's where you get the chess component. So you have teams of like eight to 10 riders and each of those riders has their own strengths, so they're kind of like a little chess piece. So, my team would sort of use me appropriately on the course to help somebody else on the team. Maybe if it's a mountaintop finish, win the race. So, what we would do is we would figure out before the race who has the best chance of winning on this course, and then everybody else on the team is going to use their own strengths to make sure that that person has the best chance of winning the race. And so, in that sense, um, one of the things I really like about it is if you have a team of eight, seven of you have already decided before the race starts that you're going to sacrifice your own opportunity to win so oh. that one of your teammates can stand on the podium. Like that's, that's hard and, <laughs> and pretty beautiful. At the same it is time. beautiful. Honestly, like um, one of the things I discovered not that long ago is the etymology of the word sacrifice is to make sacred. And I think that's such a beautiful way of thinking about it. And it honestly really speaks to how it felt for me. If I sacrificed my opportunity to win and my teammate got on the podium and she and I both know she couldn't have done that without what I did or what our teammates did. It is the best feeling in the world. It is such an amazing feeling. And the cool thing is that usually what would happen is, you know, in some races I'm helping her in another race, the team's racing for me. And when you have that experience of an entire team sacrificing for you, man, you dig deep. And then when you can deliver the win for them, it is like the most amazing feeling. And I think that the bonding that comes from that is just, it's something incredibly special. And it's one of the things I love most about the sport. I had an amazing team and, really experienced teammates that were really excited to help me get my upgrade points. So they were doing that thing that we talked about where they're sacrificing their own opportunities to win to help me get results so I could upgrade. So, um, shout out to Palo Alto bicycles, women like that team was amazing. And being able to, again, like being in this environment with amazing, competitive, like successful women who are, you know, helping me raise my bar and raise my standard was just unbelievable. Um so then by the end of that season, I had an offer from there was a women's team in the area, Webcore Builders Pro Women Cycling Team. And so in in some ways it was right place at the right time. And un- unfortunately or fortunately, like that's a big part of sport, you know, and and there's um I was so I was really lucky that when I was going to these local races, and trying for my upgrade points, I was often racing against professional level women. Speaking of raising the bar, like they really they made it hard on me, which was really great because it, it really forced me to dig deep and, and learn a lot about myself as an athlete. And that's the other cool thing is, even if you don't win, your competitor is going to teach you something about what you can do to come back and be better. And then by the end of the season, um, I think you know we just they they knew me pretty well. They saw how I raced, and then uh, offered me a contract, and that was it. Her lifelong work and dedication to athletics didn't let her down. Amber
0: might not have become an Olympic swimmer, but she did become a professional cyclist who competed in Class One World Cups and World Tours for over a decade. When we come back, Amber talks more about her professional cycling career, the nitty gritty behind nutrition and gear, and her work encouraging competition as cooperation for women. Way back in the hazy days of 1971, a few dreamers started a little company in a loft above a Connecticut pickle factory and changed cycling forever. The beginnings were hardly revolutionary. Cannondale started out making panniers and outdoor gear, but from the start there was something special, an unshakable belief that there's always a better way to make a bicycle, even if it's not the easier obvious one. It's what drives Cannondale to continually revolutionize bicycle design with developments that improve every ride, creating some of the most fun, revolutionary, and iconic bikes ever built. Wherever you ride, whatever you ride, we think that Cannondale has the perfect ride for you, and we've got some highlights at REI both in-store and online. Let's take a closer look at the king of a new generation of gravel bikes, the Cannondale Topstone Carbon. The lightweight carbon fiber frame set is enhanced with unique rear kingpin suspension, improving the ride feel on every road, path, and gravel byway. Complete with quality Shimano group sets, hydraulic disc brakes, large volume all-terrain tires, and Cannondale app connectivity, the Topstone Carbon is a true adventure bike. For more about the Topstone, Check out the Cannondale Range online or on REI's website, or better yet, pop into an REI store and speak to a bike expert who will be able to help you find your perfect ride from Cannondale. One thing that strikes me about cycling is there's a ton of strategy that the average spectator might not understand. For example, what Amber said earlier about the whole team working together for one person to win. Competitors bluff each other with their body language, or they try to chit chat at a time when they're actually really hurting, but want to look like they're totally fine. When Amber was competing full time, she also had to be strategic in her training, including how she thought about her gear and nutrition. Every cyclist I meet is really smart. You have to be because there's so much tactics involved and you have some calculations involved, but they're also really dialed in fitness and nutrition. Um, I heard you on a podcast. Recently, and you were talking about fasting and how it's different for women than men. Can you talk to me about, you know, that as well as like other nutrition tips that you've learned that you think are really important that people might not think about?
1: Yeah. So, um, I'll just say, so Stacy Sims is an amazing resource on this and she has a great book called Roar, R O A R. Um, and it's, she really dives into female physiology because a huge issue for all of us in sport is that most of the research that we have in exercise physiology up to this point has been done on men, mainly because we have this pesky little menstrual cycle that throws all the data off. So, um, Scientists like to work with men because they don't have to deal with that additional factor. Well, guess what? It's an additional factor, and it seriously affects us, right? So a lot of what we see kind of filtering and trickling into our internet feeds is trickling down from this research that's been done over the many past decades on men. And our hormones are way different, and hormones are really, really important to our physiology, and they really affect Our performance our moods our lives everything and so um, how our nutrition interacts with our hormones is super important and so stacy's done some really really groundbreaking work on this and one of the key things that she's found and points out is that most of the research that's done on fasting in particular has been done on men and that women's physiology responds a lot differently than do men's physiology so um The caveat to that, though, is that everybody's different, right? So you can't make a blanket statement and say, like, fasting is bad for women. But it's really important for us to understand that just because, you know, some guy that you know is fasting and having a ton of success on it, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, And I think that um, one of the big things that I learned the hard way with training and nutrition was to eat enough on the bike. It's all about, you know, your power to weight ratio. And it's not just about the performance either. I mean, I'll tell you like one of the things I really struggled with in my career was, I mean, I'm five I'm not small. I'm not the classic body type that you see as a cyclist. And I think one of the traps that we fall into, not just as women, but people in general, is you get into a sport and you have this stereotypical body type in your mind of what that athlete should look like. And that might not be. And I'll tell you, it wasn't for me. Like I'm 510 I don't care how much I diet. I'm never going to be five, four. You know, I'm not going to be a tiny little climber. And I had this image in my mind of like what a cyclist should look like. And I never looked like that. And it really messed with my head. And the funny thing was like, I'm sitting here, I am a professional cyclist. And I'm thinking, you know, Oh man, I don't have the body of a professional cyclist. Well, guess what? My body was literally the body of a professional cyclist. (laughs) And, and the funny thing was like, when I actually looked around in the Peloton, there were so many different heights and shapes and sizes and all of us. Yeah. We all bring different strengths to the table, but I think that this is one of those traps we fall into. Like your body doesn't have to look like the stereotypical body of that sport give your body the fuel that it needs, fuel the performance, fuel your effort, give yourself, you know, all the nutrition that your body's going to need to do the work that you're doing and let your body figure out what's going to be optimal for you. It might not be the shape that you've imagined. It might not look like a magazine cover, but it'll be the shape that's most optimal for your physiology to do the type of work that you're doing. And I think that that's a really, I, I think that's just a healthier approach in general. And I think it's way more effective than trying to fit some mold that has nothing to do with your own physiology. I think that's so important to talk about. Like sometimes we need to feel ourselves a little more. Mm -hmm. I
0: actually surf better better when I'm a little bit bigger, Yeah, but I don't exactly love how I always look in a bathing suit
1: when I'm a little bit bigger.
0: Yeah. Well, whatever. I'm catching waves. Exactly. My arms are big and I can out paddle everybody when
1: I'm just a little bigger. Your body in the form where it's going to perform the best might not look the way that you imagine it should. Right, and allowing your body to optimize. Your body's way smarter than you are. Like it's just you know, I mean, I can't tell my body that I can't tell my kidneys how to filter my blood appropriately. Like they're way smarter than I am at that. Like they're going to take care of that just fine. And the same thing with your body. Your body. Somebody said this to me the other day, and it's so true. Your body's always trying to help. Right. So when you're going out and you're performing in your sport, your body's going like, oh, this is a thing that we need to do now. So your body's automatically going to start making all these adaptations to to optimize for that thing that you're doing. Just Give your body the chance to do that. Help your body help you. <laughs> so, so eating enough is one of those yeah, tricks that you've learned. Huge. And for women, I think in particular, carbohydrate. I mean, carbohydrates are getting a really bad rap right now. Oh, I eat so many carbs. Yes. It's great. Especially for endurance sports. And so one of the um a teammate of mine, Janelle Spilker, formerly Holcomb, she had this really great equation that she taught me like long, long ago. And I quote her all the time whatever you're burning on the bike try to eat that many calories before, during, and after your ride in the form of carbohydrate. And that will fuel your effort. And then when you, when you're appropriately fueled for your effort, your mood's going to be better, which if you're in a good mood, when you're training, it's going to affect your, your performance. It'll affect your confidence. And you do that in every training session. And Hey, guess what? Your performance and your confidence are just going to continue to build. Um, but that's, that's such a key thing is fueling that effort and fueling the performance. I'm just going to be honest. I've always thought women's cycling gear was pretty ugly. (laughs) and a little antiquated.
0: And it was always, I mean, I used to think women's board shorts was terrible. And then mm-hmm. Roxy came out and it like changed my world because yeah. I would surf in my Umbro soccer shorts right. and a sports bra. That's all there was. <laughs> and, you know, Athleta and Lululemon have transformed yoga. You know what? I'm seeing some cute cycling kits out there now. Oh yeah. There's some really great
1: stuff. It's, it's really, really fun. And, and as I think the industry has finally realized that, you know, women are the fastest growing segment of this market and they're really starting to pay attention to what we need. And, um, to your point, I think like one of the key things for women getting into cycling in particular, I just want to say saddle saddle is so important. And a saddle, so your hoo hoo doesn't hurt. Exactly. And you know, I think that that's one of the biggest, barriers is like women get on a bike and they're like, man, I'm so beat up. This is horrible. Who would ever do this? And honestly, like the beauty now is there are so many different options out there. Just know that if you're in pain on your saddle, that's not normal. It doesn't have to be the case. Like just go try different saddles. As I promise you, you'll find one that works for you. Besides saddles, what's the most important gear women should have? for cycling Man, I got to do a plus one for saddles again because it's so important um but I guess secondary to that would be the chamois and that's the pad that's in the bike shorts and for the record if you've never worn a chamois they're amazing and life-changing but you need to get a good one because otherwise you know they could chafe you in the wrong way it's not it's not good um but also don't wear your underwear with them they're not meant to be worn with underwear just pro tip what Cannondale bike should I get (laughs) (laughs) that's a really hard choice. (laughs) Entry level. Entry level. Um, I really like the Evo and they just come, they just totally redesigned it. It was my favorite bike before the redesign. And I was really scared about the redesign, but I am sold. It's beautiful. And I will say, um, if budget is an issue, just find a bike that's within your budget. Find one that's safe, that works. You know, it doesn't. You don't have to be on that super high-end carbon bike to be a cyclist. Like you don't have, you don't have to wear the right thing, have the right bike, look the right way to show up on the group ride and get get involved in the sport and be a part of the community. Just just get out there.
0: REI sells bikes, and I think they
1: probably sell yeah. used bikes now. Yes, yes, so cool. Great resource, and I I really encourage people to find other people who ride because it's just so much more helpful when you have somebody who can guide you through some of the key things that, you know, I mean, I like, I kind of use the analogy of like sometimes getting into a sport is like hacking your way through the jungle in the dark with a really dull machete, because there's not always like a really clear path forward. But the truth is a lot of other people have been out there hacking their way through that same jungle. And so learning from other people and and what are the mistakes that they made? How can you learn from that? And no one's going to define your path for you, because that's part of the That's part of what's so awesome about it is you get to create this path of yours that's unique. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is if you have aspirations to become professional or even if you don't, whatever it is that your goal is, there's a million ways to get there. You don't have to follow the same path that somebody else said. You don't have to have like a certain personality type or, you know, a certain story to, you know, create your own story to get there. And I think that's the cool thing about cycling is there are so many opportunities and pathways that you can take to get there. There's something for everyone. I think what I'm seeing a lot of is these women's camps Mm -hmm. popping up and then learn to ride like REI does
0: learn to ride your bike classes, which is so cool. Yes. And, and you can learn to mountain bike and you can learn to just ride regular bike. You learn how to change a tire, which to me was really intimidating.
1: You know, exactly. And those are learning those, you know, like I was saying earlier, just learning to ride with one hand to signal appropriately in traffic or to look over your shoulder, learning to change a tire. Those are the kinds of things that make you feel empowered to get out and ride safely and, and. They're, you know, they're basic things, but they're super important. And I kind of look at them as like keystone skills. Like the second you have that skill, you feel so much more confident and empowered to go out and ride and go out and explore and get in those adventures. What about mentally staying tough? Like, is there a mantra you say to yourself to keep going or just to get out the door? I love that you use the word mantra. (laughs) Um, Yes, uh, I think, you know, not every day is going to be fun. And so I think that when you whenever you're setting a goal for yourself, I think it's really important to drill down on. Why is it that you're doing that? Because that's the answer to that question is going to be the thing that gets you out the door on the days where you're really struggling or you're really tired. But I think a mantra is a really great way to work through whether it's a lack of motivation or a lack of fear, because, you know, a lack of motivation, a lack of fear, you can't just shut that off. Right? So the cool thing about a mantra is you're not trying to shut the fear off because you can't fight, like don't fight yourself. Your fear is there for a reason. Your brain has this whole system that's wired to keep you alive. Right? So Fear is a natural and important part of our experience. Um, But, you know, so trying to fight it is not the best way, but a mantra helps you work with it because a mantra, it helps you direct your attention to something else and displace the fear, right? You supplant it with a more positive thought or more constructive thought. And it's the same thing with a lack of motivation. Like it's just, you're, you're not fighting your natural tendency, which is there for a reason, right? Um, you're just, you're working with it. You're working with your body. You're working with your psychology. And so I I love, I love picking mantras, you know, lately I, um, you know, I'm not raising full-time anymore. And so I'm not as fit as I used to be. And so going uphill is a little more painful. And so recently I've just been saying to myself, I love this sensation. I love this sensation. I love this sensation. You know, (laughs) it's like after a while you start to really believe it.
0: I love that Amber talks about the realities of day-to-day life as a pro cyclist. It just reinforces that anyone can become an athlete. Even if you don't have the fancy bike or the tight spandex, you can start, you can create your own path, and you can adopt a mantra or mental affirmation that works for you. These days, Amber is all about supporting aspiring women athletes to show up with excellence and unleash their greatest potential. So now you're really advocating for women in sports. Mm-hmm. So you started this organization,
1: Network for Advancing Athletes, to support yeah. women athletes. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. So like I said, I, you know, as a swimmer, I, I got to train and race at Stanford. So I was surrounded by Olympic medalists, world champions. And then I got into cycling. And same thing, like I'm surrounded by these Olympians and world champions. I mean, these women are amazing And the cool thing is they're just incredibly kind, approachable human beings. And any one of them would love, love the opportunity to give back to help an athlete who's aspiring and coming up through the sport. So in seeing that around me all the time, I realized that, you know, I'm in this really unique position to realize that that resource is there, but many people don't because, you know, we're not the headline in mainstream media. And I just thought, you know, when you show up to a bike race, as an example, if an aspiring athlete were to come up and chat to me or any of my teammates, we would have all the time in the world for them. But how intimidating would that be, right? To be the person that's showing up to the race, you're kind of a newbie, like to to rock up to a women's pro team and be like, Hey guys, (laughs) it's not, it's not the most natural thing in the world. So I was just thinking there's just this huge untapped resource out there of these incredible women athletes who all started with no experience and then made their way through that crazy jungle, hacking their way with their dull machetes and all the things that they've learned that can help other women in their paths. And so, uh, that was what network for advancing athletes is all about. It's just, it's a nonprofit. It's not a huge organization, but it's basically just trying to create a place where women of any age, any experience level, we don't care if you want to be pro, or you don't want to be pro you are just getting into the sport. We have athletes who have been through it all who really want to help you really want to help you. So we pair people up with mentors. Uh, we do clinics and to your point, you know, it's all, you know, women mentors, mentoring women, women's clinics, because there's just a different energy. There's a different energy when you have a room full of women together, lifting each other up and it's a really cool thing. So yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun to try to grow that on the side.
0: I think that's fantastic. So you have this saying, be a good wheel. Yes. And I've seen that on your website. What does that mean? How does that fit into the whole equation?
1: So when you're in cycling and you do a group ride or you're in a race, there are certain people who are just really good wheels to be on. They're the person that you want to be behind because you know they're going to take the good line, the fast line, the safe line. They're not going to take you over a giant pothole. They're going to point out obstacles for you. Um, they know what they're doing, so they're going to be positioning themselves and be in the right place at the right time. And so in a really literal sense, that's that's a thing, you know, like, oh, so-and-so is a really good wheel. But there's this funny origin story. So getting back to David, when we first started dating we were on a ride together and we were just about to start a descent and he kind of I was on his wheel and he kind of glanced over his shoulder and said you can trust me I'm a good wheel and I was like okay cool and then he turned around again and said that's a metaphor for life <laughs> which totally it's true he's a great wheel in life as well um but but that that metaphor is it it's so true because there are people who are good wheels in the peloton and then there are people who are good wheels, whether they ride bikes or not. And I just, I love that at any level of sport, whether you're a professional or a beginner, uh, whether you have aspirations to race or not, anybody can be a good wheel for somebody else. But you're really trying to be a good wheel for a ton of female athletes right now, which is, is such a big mission
0: and it's, it's a really good mission. So thanks for doing that. (laughs) What, What are some of the
1: results you've seen through your work? Oh, really, really cool stuff. I mean, what I find is most of the challenges that we all face are relatively universal. We're all human beings. And so we all, most of us struggle with confidence. There are a lot of things that we can face on the bike fears that we can face on the bike and overcome. And it's like when you figure out how to take a corner at speed in a way that you feel really confident and in control. And you're like in that thrill zone of like, yeah, man, I'm on the edge, but I got this. When you can do that with something that you didn't think you could do on the bike, it makes you step back and question, you know, what else am I, what else am I afraid of in my life that I thought maybe wasn't possible that maybe is like, what else can I give myself permission to try and to to overcome in my life? And so you see it translate from the bike across, just, just across everything in people's lives. What favors are we doing anybody by ever holding back? What's something that you thought isn't possible
0: for your own life? What can you challenge? What can you give yourself permission to try, even if it feels scary and on edge, like biking around a tight corner or even just picking up a bike and riding it? Do yourself a favor and go for it. Try it. When we face our fears and show ourselves who we can be, we open up a world of possibilities. If you're a female athlete or aspiring to be one, make sure you check out Amber's nonprofit, Network for Advancing Athletes at advancingathletes.org to find a mentor or attend a clinic. It doesn't matter how old you are or how experienced you are as an athlete. Amber's nonprofit is there to support you. Amber, thank you so much for coming onto the show, for bringing your dog. Talking to you definitely made me want to compete again. You can learn more about Amber at her website, amberpierce.us, or on Instagram, at Amber Malika, that's at A-M-B-E-R-M-A-L-I-K-A. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motula and Joe Crosby, and our presenting sponsor is Subaru. Tune in week after next as I talk to Megan Martin about what it's like to be a modern-day ninja warrior. As always, we appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen, And remember, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas.